0: Hello again, this is Alan Lightman. Our three-part public TV series, Searching Our Quest for Meaning in the Age of Science, continues premiering on PBS stations nationwide and remains accessible on pbs.org through May 2023. After that, many stations will offer the series to members in their passport collection. My on-camera conversations for searching captured some fascinating material from a diverse cast of characters, Nobel laureates, MacArthur geniuses, leading researchers in biology, neuroscience, physics, and astronomy, plus philosophers, ethicists, a rabbi, the Dalai Lama, and a humanoid robot. These podcasts share more of that material than we could include in the broadcast series. And I'm happy to acknowledge that both the series and these podcasts are made possible by a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. I grew up Jewish in Memphis, Tennessee. That's why I call Rabbi Micah Greenstein my rabbi. He's the senior rabbi of Temple Israel and has helped build the synagogue into a major force for good in Memphis. He and I are longtime friends we share views on science and spirituality. Micah is committed to interfaith dialogue and has built bridges to Muslim and Christian congregations. While in Memphis, our searching film crew captured his sermon at St. Mike's Catholic Church, in which he quoted from Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela, as well as Jewish texts. Micah's father was also a rabbi. Several of the Greensteins have beautiful voices. I spoke with Rabbi Greenstein at Temple Israel in front of a magnificent Torah. Our conversation was wide-ranging with plenty of theological references, but also touching on dogs and dolphins and others I had conversations with, including Bina 48, the Dalai Lama, and Eric Sordo. But we kept returning to the interplay of spirituality and science, one of the key themes of the Searching mini-series. If
1: you believe that there is a power beyond us who wants us to liberate that energy within us, to reach our human potential morally, um, I don't believe scientists really care about that. Scientists just want to explain how things work, not why they matter. I believe science explains how the world is. Religion suggests how the world ought to be. But we do know that within these parameters, whether we live 16 years or 95 years, in the scheme of the cosmos and time itself, it's all a blink of an eye. That's why we should do the most that we can with the time that we have and the place where we are, Well, it's, it's great to be with you,
0: Micah. I mean, even under formal conditions, it's always inspiring to spend time with you.
1: I can't believe we're back where it all started for you, too, here in Memphis, Tennessee.
0: Yeah. Well, I grew up uh, with the old Temple Israel, and the building was, you know, a basement compared to this place.
1: Same eternal light.
0: Oh, well, same eternal light. That's right. I've heard you lead prayer a number of times. And uh, last night at the talk that you gave at St. Michael's, at the end, you and Father Ben both led prayers.
1: Why do we pray? We pray to express the depths of our being to the source of life, because if we didn't pray, we would just be bodies. Prayer in Judaism or in religion in general is an offering of the heart. And by the heart, I don't mean the muscle. So a prayer orientation, I believe, suggests that we're really not bodies with souls. We're spirits with anatomy. And prayer is a way to express that inner part of ourselves as humans that distinguishes us from all other living organisms. I've never seen a dog prey. Well, we know that some animals, uh, I'm thinking of of
0: dolphins and us particularly, uh, have as many neurons in their brain as we do. So it's kind of hard to know what's in the mind of a dolphin. I mean,
1: maybe they have something that's akin to prayer. Perhaps, and you're entering into a realm I have no knowledge about, science. Um, But my understanding is that while science is essential to understanding how things work, including how dolphins' minds may work, science will never explain why it matters to the human heart. That is, whether it's dolphins or robots or artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is a form of intelligence. But don't you think, Alan, that artificial meaning is an oxymoron? Possibly.
0: But suppose that you could build a an artificial being or computer that was able to think. And any attributes we associated with consciousness, like uh, self-awareness, a sense of self, a sense of uh, being separate from the rest of the universe, the ability to to plan, the ability to, to, to program itself. And we do have computers now that can Program themselves. Could, could such a thing have, let's say,
1: morality or, or ethics? The operative word you just used in my mind is that it would have to be programmed. I don't think a soul can be created from scratch from a living organism. Of course, we could program the being to be kind. But fundamentally, I think what it means to be human is that we are meaning makers. And there's a distinction between intellect and conscience. Would that being self-reflect on the capacity to grow or repent or change or forgive? I think it could if a scientist programmed it, but this is the distinction, I think, between moral conscience and intellect, between science and the humility of the religious quest, which is fundamentally about this inexplicable, ineffable being called humans that has this ensoulment.
0: Do you disagree? Well, aren't we programmed? I mean, we have DNA and the DNA has all the instructions for creating a human being. So
1: aren't we programmed also? What's what's the difference? I feel like you're suggesting a deflection. You're you're going to DNA instead of, if we want to stay with that, I think we all have a hard drive inside of us with the capacity, the capacity to care. Um, The end goal, um, we're beside the Tory here, the, the end goal is not the freedom to create, It's our responsibility to one another that we have been endowed with that capacity, which is why in the Bible, no matter what one's religion, God doesn't prevent Adam and Eve from eating of the tree of knowledge. God doesn't prevent Cain from killing his brother. Human choice is not an algorithm.
0: Can you have the choice without faith or can you have a a sense of
1: morality and ethics without faith? Absolutely, it it depends what we mean by faith. I I believe certain words that are meant to be bridges are really divides. Uh, Faith does not mean self-righteousness. Faith does not mean believing in God, but it means believing in what believing in God means, and if that means aspiring to goodness and justice and kindness. So I believe uh, atheists, for instance, are very faithful people because they do God's work. So of showing- them <laughs> Right, <laughs> but it's possible uh, faith Faith, my friend, is lived in the doing. Faith is living in the light of love. Faith is believing that we are part of a cosmos and part of a humanity larger than oneself. Faith is fundamentally an act of humility as I see it, which does not mean thinking little of oneself, but being aware of realities greater than oneself. The way you speak of the stars are us and we are the stars. It's all one. That to me is faith, though for others it may mean an orthodox way of believing something is right or wrong. Not morally, but in terms of doctrine. So I believe faith deserves a comeback. That's great.
0: Well, you were speaking about uh, morality and faith and and something that's that's intrinsic to, to human beings. Do you think that science
1: informs morality in any way? I believe the Nazis in the 20th century proved that some of the greatest scientists can be the most despicable human beings. There is a difference between being smart and being good. And so if morality is about this distinction between right and wrong, I don't believe that morality is intrinsic to every human. To use your scientific analogies or a computer analogy, I believe humans have a hard drive that is not only up here, but it's possible to tap into it here. Rabbi Micah is a compelling and
0: charismatic speaker, but in an audio podcast, of course, you can't see him
1: gesturing towards his heart as he just did. Not all do, I don't mean to suggest. And in fact, some who claim to as religious people desecrate this moral quest of religion by making it about their power, whether It's in India or Israel or the Vatican. I don't mean to suggest that religion as a moral quest is pure, but if you believe that there is a power beyond us who wants us to liberate that energy within us to reach our human potential morally, I don't believe scientists really care about that. Scientists just want to explain how things work, not why they matter. I, you're a scientist. Well, what you just said is, is very much like what the philosopher
0: Rebecca Goldstein has said. And the way that she puts, us, puts it is that science tells us what is and philosophy and the humanities tell us why it matters. So she used almost the same vocabulary
1: as you. I would use slightly different vocabulary as a religious leader. I venerate her writings and I would never disagree with the philosopher of her stature. I believe science explains how the world is. Religion suggests how the world ought to be. Let me uh, go back to your And, excuse me, how we ought to be. How we ought to be. Yeah. Yeah. Science suggests how the world is, and religion posits how the world and we ought to be because uh, the Bible is not a uh, science book. The point of Genesis is not to explain even how the world was created. You and I have talked about that, about First Cause, Prime Mover. The, The point of a religious approach to existence is not how the world was created, or even when it was created, but why we were created, and what distinguishes us on this planet in our capacity to care, be compassionate, and have a conscience. I'm not sure that dolphin will take care of me
0: when I die. Well, there have been experiments with monkeys. Uh, one of them in which uh, a, a monkey was, was dying, an older woman of the, of the tribe. And the, the other monkeys behaved as if very much like a human funeral ritual. They circled her. One of the, the males came over and, and, and started grooming her. Uh, the, the, the other monkeys acted weirdly. And then during the night when she was uh, panting and, uh, heavily and, and everyone, all the other monkeys knew that she was going to die soon, her daughter sat next to her the whole night. And if you would, had just translated this into a human context, it would have looked very much like a human ritual. There's another experiment where uh, some crows saw one crow that was uh, in trouble I can't remember exactly, like a broken leg or something, and went to its aid. So I would conjecture, and of course uh, I'm not uh, an evolutionary biologist, but I think that this would be in, in accord with evolutionary biology, that human beings are actually on a continuum of intelligence, consciousness, and that these other animals, uh, especially the more intelligent ones, demonstrate behavior of, of caring. I mean, we all have, have pets like dogs that know when we're we're suffering and, and come and try to give us comfort.
1: So what would be your response to that, that we're on a continuum? I love it. I did not mean to set up an invidious comparison between animals and humans. I think that that ritual of monkeys showing care for their loved one after the passing of another monkey teaches the capacity to care and how we have evolved from that, not just physically or biologically, but to where one even cares about a grandchild or a great grandchild. I wonder if the evolutionary biologists have found other species that care about a fourth generation we procreate like animals. We share the same DNA. Animals are often in the same womb. I learn from my dog. I think that animals teach us often how we can become. However, the Nazis loved their dogs and gassed people to death. So I guess even the scientists among the Nazis forgot to tap into that monkey compassion. Yes. So
0: it is a continuum. So if it's a continuum, what's special about homo sapiens? Is there anything special about us? Do we have something? It's,
1: it's, it's showing the capacity for conscience at its highest level. When it says in the Bible, no matter what one's faith, that God created humanity in God's image, It even says, let us create humanity in our image. But if there's one God, why does it say, let us? And the French commentator Rashi had a very incisive insight. He said, again, these rabbinic commentators believed no words were superfluous and there were no accidents in, in the lettering of the Torah. He said, uh... Perhaps it's the royal we, the queen would say, let us have tea, even if it were one. But the best answer is the commentator who said, God is creating human beings, after creating whom? And the is the animals. So let us create means that I'm going to create humanity with the capacity to eat like a pig, to copulate like a rabbit, or to aim higher. Being human can mean being lowly and full of sin in some religious contexts, but being human can also mean that like the rays of the sun, we have a glimpse of something beyond. But when you ask me, then what is unique about Homo sapiens, I'm not God, but I do know that if we discover life on other planets, for instance, it will only enlarge my humility there's no conflict between the scientific research on evolutionary biology or astronomy. It only confirms the mystery that much more.
0: When God said in the Bible, let us create human humans and put uh, whatever is special into humans, and I know you've told me before that God put the soul into humans. Moral conscience? Moral conscience, souls. Suppose we do discover life on other planets and intelligent life. We know that it's out there. I mean, we're 99.9% sure that it has to be out there. Would those beings be included in God's statement, let us now create humans? Would they have the same qualities of of, humanity, of morality, of soul, of spirit, that Homo sapiens does on our one tiny planet at the edge of an ordinary galaxy.
1: I love hearing you talk about the galaxies and the billions of years and the different planets. When life is discovered on other planets, I hope I'm alive to read their Torah. <laughs> so, you think there'll be some Jews out there? <laughs> Wherever you go, there's always someone Jewish, even on Mars. <laughs> uh, but all, all kidding aside, um, Esperanto is a beautiful idea but we need to speak in particular languages. So perhaps the creator, uh, we only know our reality, but I can only imagine as a scientist in understanding the breadth of time and our place in the world, how utterly humbling
0: it must be. And one of the most uh, beautiful things that Einstein said, my favorite quote of his is, that the most beautiful experience we can have is the mysterious. It is the fundamental emotion that lies at the cradle of true art and true science. Faith is living in that mystery. So let me get back to the question. I'm not going to let you off the hook. I hope I'm not avoiding any questions. No, you're not avoiding any questions. Let me get back to it. Suppose we do discover intelligent life out in the cosmos beyond Earth, probably beyond our solar system. Would those beings uh, be enveloped in the same grace of God as humans? When God said in the Bible, let us now create humans, would those other intelligent beings elsewhere in the cosmos, would they be included
1: in that statement? Assuming they can read Hebrew. Since that's the language that it was received in, translated into English, I don't know what language one speaks on planets beyond this one, but all religions, whether they're in this world or if they practice it somewhere else beyond this planet, ask the same fundamental questions. You you started with one, um, how do we pray? What happens after we die? What's our place in the world? And what's the path to living the best life, meaning the refinement of human beings? So if on that planet, those beings answer those questions in their own way and have found the path to living a purposeful life of meaning where they are, sure. But I believe it was given on Mount Sinai, which is a speck
0: in the cosmos. So, let's talk about meaning. Now, I have read that when you were um, a student at the Harvard Kennedy School, and I don't know whether it's your first or second or third master's degree, that I read that a professor changed your mind about going into government and said you, could be, you should be a rabbi. And something to the effect that, that rabbis can provide meaning. So how did that change your mind? And why it is, Why do we seek meaning? Why do we human beings seek meaning? So first, what changed your mind about what that professor said? Why did you decide to become a rabbi instead of the other career, many careers you were contemplating?
1: Well, my father was a rabbi in Boston, may he rest in peace, which means he wanted me to see a psychiatrist before I was contemplating the rabbinate to make sure it was what I, wanted. Um, I was headed into public service and Richard Newstadt, may he rest in peace, who wrote Presidential Power and who worked in a number of different administrations at the White House, offered a seminar called Uses of History with Ernie May. and following one of the afternoon seminars he asked me to walk with him. And he was on my admissions committee. I guess he had read my application and saw that I was contemplating rabbinical school, but I was entering the Kennedy School. And he said to me, uh, essentially, that these years that he's been at Harvard have been among the most meaningful time of his life. And I said, I can only imagine being a professor here. And he said, that's not what I'm talking about. I believe his wife at the time was ill. And he had spent his life impacting all of us through his books. But he said, for the last six months, I've been able not just to be with her, but to realize how this is the most important time of my life. What he was saying essentially, Alan, is that like animals, we eat, we sleep, we go to the bathroom we survive in a Darwinian way to succeed. But my professor had learned that the goal in life is to move from success to significance, whether that means taking care of your wife, improving the lives of the other. And I think that fundamentally, there again, I think Professor Neustadt was reflecting a religious idea that life is fundamentally at its highest form when it's about the other, not only about oneself. And that changed me. Is that
0: related to meaning? Why do we human beings search for meaning? And, and there, I might agree with you that we're different from dolphins, uh, even though I don't know what's in a dolphin's mind.
1: Why do we search for meaning? I'll answer the question, but I wanna know why you think we search for meaning. I think that the search
0: for meaning is what Stephen Jay Gould called a spandrel, which is, which is um, a quality that doesn't have direct survival benefit, but it is a byproduct of a quality that has survival benefit that was sort of cooked into our brains over millions of years of evolution. And so I think that the search for meaning my own opinion, is connected with the feeling of being part of something larger than oneself. And and that had survival benefit because uh, in prehistoric times when people lived in small groups of 20 or 30 people in caves, you were very, very dependent on the other people in the cave. Uh, you had some people who went out and, and gathered the food. You had other people who kept the fire going. You had people who, who nursed the children. And if you were kicked out of the cave on your own, you, you had a quick death. And I think this feeling that we have of being part of a group and part of something larger than our individual selves was related to that, that survival necessity. And I think that the search for meaning is somehow a byproduct of that. That's my best answer. Of course, I don't know, it's a difficult question, but I wondered what you think is the reason why human beings search for meaning. And and this may be something that's particular about Homo
1: sapiens. I think it's fairly simple. I believe that human beings know that life is too meaningful to be meaningless. In other words, In our heart of hearts, we know that living is more than breathing, that to truly live is to walk in two ways, Alan. We walk on the ground physically with our feet, but the human spirit aspires for meaning. It's as natural as breathing, and that is where I believe we are different than any other creature. I'm not saying that it hasn't evolved from the monkey funeral example, but we, be, we start with that and imagine where that could go if we cultivated our souls and our hearts and our care and our compassion and our conscience as much as we have succeeded materially, aspirationally in so many other realms of, of life. So I think a spiritual person, whether they consider themselves religious or not, would not try to explain life away purely by scientific data, would say there is more to it than that. I consider myself a
0: spiritual person. And what does that mean? Well, I'm, well, I was gonna say that you have really helped me in my own personal spiritual journey. I don't know about that. But what I mean, when I say that I'm a spiritual person, is I feel that there are things larger than myself. I feel like I'm part of things larger than myself. I have awe when I look up at the night sky and other natural things. I, I have a sense of beauty. And I also want to help other people. But I also consider myself a materialist. I believe that the world is made of atoms and molecules and nothing more. So. Sometimes I think of myself as a spiritual materialist. Are you a materialist? I
1: am, but I don't remember what it was like before I was born. And I know that I entered into this world and I almost missed it. If I hadn't thought about life as meaning, as awe, as wonder, I would have missed last night's sunset. I would have missed the miracle of the birth of my children. I would have seen it, it's a commonplace thing. I just came from the hospital, we're finally able to visit again, coming out of COVID. And the birth of a child is a commonplace thing. The death of a loved one, 200,000 people I believe are born or die every day. What makes it extraordinary? I believe while that baby is and the world is comprised of all these atoms, can we not agree that when you have a child or a grandchild or become awestruck at the way the planets move, is that not
0: awesome? It is. And isn't it awesome that all of that can come out of the electrical and chemical signals between neurons
1: isn't that amazing it is to me absolutely and where did that come from i don't know you obviously use a higher percentage of your brain than most people but i believe it still is a limited percentage (laughs) so i believe that compassionate people had to be created by a compassionate source with a capital c maybe with a capital n for neuron i just can't believe this is all an accident that we're just atoms colliding we could be that but we know that we can be so much more
0: well there are some physicists who think that our entire universe is an accident that there are many many other universes out there called the multiverse and that most of them do not have the right conditions to make life. Not just life as on Earth, but any kind of life. They're expanding too quickly, or they don't have the right parameters of the nuclear force, and that only a small fraction of universes have the right condition to make life. And we happen to be in such a universe, or otherwise we wouldn't be here talking in this beautiful sanctuary. So, there is that view among many scientists that not only we are accidents, but our entire
1: universe is an accident. I'm happy for them. I hope they can still laugh at jokes. I hope they still have imagination. And I hope they can still find joy. Yes, I do too. And I believe that is also, I shared at the talk last night, why waste a minute, an hour, a second of a day when you have the opportunity to To grow in a different way than the rest of the trees outside, you can appreciate the growth. You can find joy. I'm hesitating to use certain words because they may sound righteous, Mm -hmm. but to feel blessed is primarily to feel grateful. And I'm not sure those multiverse people will ever be able to explain why human beings or dolphins are grateful.
0: Uh, uh, last summer, I had a conversation with a very advanced android named Bina 48. Uh, She had the head and shoulders of a woman. She could see you because she had photoelectric detectors. She could, she could hear you. And she was hooked up to a, to a, a big computer and could carry on an intelligent conversation with her. She was an android. And in the future, we probably will have more and more advanced androids. And it's possible that at some point in the future, such an android would have all the attributes of consciousness. So I wonder, what is our moral responsibility to such beings? Or is there any moral responsibility?
1: To be aware of our power to create, without a sense of responsibility or with one, meaning we can turn Bina off if you were to leave Memphis now because you can't look after her. Would I
0: have to ask permission to unplug her? Would I have to ask her permission
1: to unplug her? Well, if humans created her, that's your choice. But we're on the pulpit, for instance, where the Ark, which is now open, symbolizes the burning bush that Moses saw. He recognized something extraordinary, instinctively, with awe. I don't have confidence in Bina spontaneously, unless again, the scientists programmed her to look out for burning bushes. Moses was a shepherd, he was tending to sheep, and he saw this bush. But the reason I share that story is because while you were with her, I was with, not at the same time, but on this pulpit with a child who has Down syndrome, my um, amazing congregant here, whose Torah portion was the burning bush. And a musician wrote a song called Holy Ground based on that verse in the book of Exodus where God says to Moses, oh, you saw that with your eyes. Take your shoes off, Moses, you're standing on holy ground. As the performer from Los Angeles is singing that song, Holy Ground, the bar mitzvah student took his shoes off. Well. I share that because we were moved to tears. I'm still thinking of that moment right now. It came to me as you were describing. And I wonder if, if Bina was by my bat mitzvah girl, whether anything I told you would have ever happened. What's our moral responsibility? To be careful with what we create.
0: So, you're speaking of a moral responsibility to ourselves rather than to the
1: things that we create. I'm speaking about a moral responsibility to others because we could design BINA to do great harm. Gas was designed not only to keep our cars running, but to kill people. The Nazis computed how efficient they could make the killing of human beings. and They got it down to one and a half cents a person even though we know that every life is of infinitesimal value. So, no, I don't believe that moral responsibility is to ourselves. I worry about what Bina might do in the hands of the wrong, smart person. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Um, But I I guess
0: I'm not... uh, I want to ask the question in a different way. Do we have a responsibility to Bina herself? not to other people who might use Bina, but to Bina herself. And an example of that is if I wanted to unplug Bina, would I need to ask her permission, this android's permission before unplugging her? Um, does she have moral status herself? I'm using the feminine pronoun. We can, you can say itself if you, if you want to. This android
1: that we've created, does it have a moral status itself? It has an inferior status to us. We're trying to play God as scientists. We're trying to create life. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because we're in this world to heal and to cure and to help, and to be stewards of this planet as best we can. But Bina is dependent on our choices. We're not dependent on her choices. And I'll give you another example, Alan. In the very contentious issue in religious circles about terminating pregnancies, there's room for moral disagreement. There are those who would say that life begins at conception. We call those people pro-life. And there are those who believe that it's a woman's right to choose, and surely government and other people should not interfere with that woman's decision. But there's a third way of looking at it related to your Bina example, and that is the fetus is a part of a woman's body, an appendage, but her, the mother's life always takes precedence over the appendage. In Jewish law, the fetus is called a rodave. So if, for all that is um, sensationalized with pictures of third trimester beings, homo sapiens. I find it fascinating that when I lived in Israel, I met a doctor who was more ambivalent about performing a first trimester abortion on someone who wanted to go to Cyprus on a vacation, and that's why she wanted to terminate the pregnancy because it wasn't convenient, versus being willing to do an excruciating procedure in the eighth month because that being would bleed out the mom. That being, while a human, its own life was questionable. So when you ask, what's our moral responsibility to this android, I believe that human life is the potentially highest form of life. And I'll give you another um, analogy. This this one may relate. I know you used to live off Cherry Road and after confirmation class in 1963, you would walk home from Rabbi Wax's classes and contemplate the big questions. There were even lakes around here. Suppose that you're walking by that lake, Alan, and there are two people drowning, your dog and a total stranger. No, maybe someone you despised at White Station High School who was a bully and you could only save one, who would you save?
0: You're sounding just like the Princeton philosopher, Peter Singer. I do not know him. Well, he's posed moral uh, quandaries exactly like the one you just
1: posed. And how would you answer? Would I save the dog or the human? Save your dog or the human who bullied you? That must be a rhetorical question. Of course, I would save the human. Why? Because I- You don't like him. You like- The dog, you love the dog. No one loves you more than your dog. Why would you save the human? Because I value human beings more than dogs. And that's why I think Bina doesn't have the same moral agency that we do. But she might have some moral agency. Right, but I would still save the human. Okay, but you've
0: created a situation which is pretty extreme, and I'm not asking whether you would save Bina, who's drowning, versus a human being who's drowning. What I'm asking is, if we create advanced androids that have all of the attributes of, of consciousness, of course, you can never get into another being's mind, so you, and you can't get into a computer's mind, of course. Would I need to ask permission from Bina to
1: unplug her? No. Why not? I think, because I think it's even scarier than the Professor Singer analogy, because we could program these androids to do far more destructive things than a dog drowning. The state of the planet, the world. Well, we're programming people to do destructive things right now. So why, why defer to another creature? Why not assume responsibility and hold humans more accountable in, for the bean and for our own destructive aims.
0: We've been talking about humans a lot and what makes human. And actually we humans or homo sapiens are going through a lot of evolution right now, but not Darwinian evolution, evolution by our own hands, where I spoke recently to a a paralyzed man (laughs) named Eric Sordo, who was paralyzed from the waist down And a few years ago, I think around uh, 10 years ago, he had electrodes implanted in his brain that allowed him to move a robotic arm just by pure thought. So he had some computer chips in his brain that could read the... sense the electrical signals from his neurons, send that to a computer that was able to decode those into desires. And, And just by thinking, He could ask this robotic arm to pick up a glass of water and bring it to his lips. And there's no doubt that in the future that we will have even more enhancements of human beings with all kinds of artificial devices in our bodies. We might even have computer chips that connect our brains directly to the internet. So we're really evolving into something that you might call homo techno rather than homo sapiens. And so I wonder whether uh, these various qualities that you've associated with, with Homo sapiens, because we're speaking of, of human beings that we know now, and I'm talking about human be- uh, humans, Homo technos, these part machine, part humans, several hundred years into the future. What are those creatures going to be like? Um, will they also have the, the qualities of, of compassion and caring and feeling that they're part of something larger than themselves?
1: Perhaps, but we're back to the same subject, the capacity of human beings to create, whether creating human technos or androids. The more important question is, what are we doing, not just with our power to create, but with our moral responsibility to those in front of us to the world itself, to humanity. I um, I wonder why it matters or whether it changes anything. I had a heart cath, I'm fine. When I was inside that MRI tube, I prayed not for a good result, of course that's a given, but I meditate, so I found a sense of peace and serenity being inside that tube. Now, I couldn't do as this incredible person you mentioned activated my brain to make my left hand move the lever so I could get the heck out of that tube. All we know is what we know. And maybe that's enough when it comes to the religious questions of responsibility, of goodness, of what we call predicate theology. What does that mean? God is just. God is goodness god is loving god is compassionate god is patient god is forgiving god is wondrous god is awe god is the creator of this world and so if we want to try to create a brain go for it but you'll never be god with that
0: brain that is part Human and part machine, this brain of the future, will it have the qualities that we associate with humans now? Would we, and would we have a, a, a moral responsibility to it? Would it have moral status? Would it feel these things? Because once you start manipulating the brain, I mean, we know that we can do this now with just drugs, you know, Adderall and other drugs that, that change personalities. Will this thing of the future be recognizable? as a human, and I know that I'm being vague here because I don't know what this thing is going to be, but I can see the trend of of enhancing human capabilities far beyond what we were born with. And when we start manipulating the brain, we're getting into vastly new territory that I can't even imagine. You and I will likely
1: not be alive when we reach these incredible technological advancements. I hope the world is around when we get to that point, because what worries me is our lack of moral accountability and responsibility for what we create. And that's why the bridge between science and ethics has never been more paramount. Humility means admitting, even as a religious person, the great harm that people, whether they're religious or not, have inflicted on each other cruelty, torture, the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan people, Muslims in India who are not Hindu, torture, cruelty. If I do ever meet my maker, I'll be able to say, I didn't miss the Alps. Thanks for creating those. But I do have a question for you. Why are people so cruel to one another? Yes, this is a
0: question that I've asked you before about how can there be a God as, consul- as, as generally understood by most religious traditions,
1: a God that allows this cruelty? Yes, and I know uh, my dear Buddhist friends who I not only love and admire, whether it's Yos hat and others, suffering is hard to explain. But for me, it's all a continuum, life and death. And religion is about morality within the parameters of life. We can explain why the kids at St. Jude got cancer if they lived near a toxic waste dump. But ultimately, um, there's no satisfying answer to when bad things happen to good people. But we do know that within these parameters, whether we live 16 years or 95 years, in the scheme of the cosmos and time itself, it's all a blink of an eye. That's why, as I said before, we should do the most that we can with the time that we have and the place where we are. I'm not sure other animals think that way or act that way or tap into that soul print that distinguishes us as meaning-makers.
0: We've talked uh, some about science and the, the future evolution of, of humans into homo techno. What are some questions that science cannot answer? Or are there any questions
1: that science cannot answer? Science only exp- explains how things work. Science doesn't explain why things matter. um, Science breaks things down. It doesn't explain any of those virtues that may be invisible, but which we know are real. Does science explain love? Does science explain what you feel when you see nature? even if it can explain how nature works, does it? We now know scientists, neuroscientists have taught me that music makes 95% of homo sapiens cry. If you play a song from 70 years ago that touches not a nerve, but touches your soul, It evokes tears, art 5%. No other species reacts that way, which is why this field of music and healing, not music therapy, but the science of music as it relates to Homo sapiens, I find to be uh, not just compelling and real, but science is showing and confirming that we are different, even if we're the same.
0: Do you think that science will be able to show why it is that music makes us cry? That is, if you, if you hooked up all of our neurons to a giant computer and were able to measure all of the electrical and chemical signals between them, and then you played a
1: song Apparently, heavy metal works well with chemo patients in their 70s. A a study showed that.
0: (laughs) So do you think science could could give an explanation to to this amazing fact that music makes 75% of, of humans cry? Do you think that science would ever be able to explain that?
1: Yes, and even hopefully prescribe the music, but science won't explain why it matters. Why, if we're all going to die, why care about providing a good death to people? Why provide a good death? Why die with dignity? I I don't know, I'm not a scientist. Are scientists asking these questions of- Well, of course, psychologists do,
0: but I don't think that neuroscientists are asking them. Do you think that science will ever be able to predict why two particular people fall in love? Let's say you take two people or two strangers and you have full access to their brains. From that data, would science ever be able to predict whether those two people
1: would fall in love or not? So let's talk about love from a psychological perspective. Standpoint, it has nothing to do with the loins. Love is about positive emotions, human emotions. Can we replicate those emotions that are not physical? Love, Ursula, the writer I, speaks of it has to be needed and nurtured to grow. When I marry couples on this pulpit. I mean it when I say may your love grow deeper with each passing day. Falling in love is easy. Any animal can fall in love with another animal if we want to put it in those terms. Building love, not just in relationship with a partner, but for four generations, I I think that is another distinguishing feature of love among humans. We can learn from animals of our own human
0: potential. You, you keep using the word animals in in contrast to
1: human beings, but aren't we animals also? Yeah, we, um, I'm trying to shy away from hyperbolic language when I say we're the pinnacle of creation. I think we're, we are part animal, but the part you and I are talking about, the soul, the human soul is more and it enables us to be stewards of other animals and to also be a little less than divine. Can non-human animals have souls? Sure, there are different types of souls. My tradition speaks of nefesh, which is all humans, all animals are endowed with souls, but the human soul is unique for the reasons we've been talking about the past hour self-reflection, um, um, praying. I'm not saying that animals don't have codes of behavior, but if you look at Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, what we call the law of the jungle, nature is amoral, isn't it? Nature is amoral. The lions rip each other apart. Why don't we? Some of us do. That is the animal side. To humanity, but the soul print—what we're talking about today—is what makes us not only animal-like but godlike.
0: Well, let me just go back. To, uh, I just have one or two more yeah. questions for you. Getting back, do you think that that scientists will be able to predict? just on basis on the brains of two people, whether they will fall in love. And I mean love in the way that that you mean it. I don't mean just desire to mate. I mean the, the deep form of love. Will neuroscience progress to a level where it could take the brains of two people and predict whether they will fall in love? Do
1: you think that's, that will happen? And if not, why not? I think they will be able to predict and maybe even do a better jab, job than dating apps on Hinge. <laughs> but as I tell every couple, a wedding isn't a marriage. I'm not sure those scientists will be able, unless they want to program the marriage. And then they would be like Bina 48, right? I guess she needs to meet Bill. We'll have Bill and Bina, the androids. I wish them All the love in the world. Let me ask you one last
0: question. Science has certainly made a lot of advances. And just in the last few hundred years, we have learned about the expansion of the universe and the Big Bang. We've learned where we are in the galaxy. We've been able to uncover the instructions that make new human beings. Should we be amazed or humbled by these discoveries?
1: Both. When I say that, uh, I believe it was Einstein who said there are two ways to live your life. I don't know that particular quote, but please go ahead. One way is to live your life as if everything is a miracle. And the other is, as nothing is. You can wake up every day in Jewish speak and say, oi, or wow, the advancement of science, the rapidity of technology is amazing and humbling. And here we are 4,000 years after these scrolls were either written or received, however they got to us, still talking about the eternal human emotions of love, of goodness, of kindness, of compassion, of justice, of all these attributes. I know there's some scientists who feel there's a conflict with religion. But it's no accident, as we learned last night, that 35 craters on the moon are named for Jesuit priests who are scientists. So maybe there is a harmony. Maybe science and religion ought to deepen their respect for each other rather than look for problems. They're enough without us doing anything. You
0: said that we should be both amazed and humbled by the advancement of science. Can you explain how we should be, why we should be amazed and why should we, we should be humbled at the same time?
1: Sure. What grows never grows old is a uh, old Jewish aphorism. And it's amazing to me, the mind with which we've been endowed and its capacity to do great harm or great evil. It's humbling that we were fashioned with arteries and veins and blood, flesh and guts, and yet everything we are and everything we enjoy is the result of these unique human endowments, and that is both humbling and amazing. Certainly, our brains,
0: even if they're all just atoms and molecules, which is my belief, it's amazing what the human brain is capable of. The imagination, the creativity, the art, science, the love, which I think ultimately comes from the brain, even though it's a mystery, as Einstein said, it's pretty astonishing that all of that emerges. A few weeks ago, I was in Switzerland and talked to an astronomer named Pascal Usch. And he and his colleagues have the distinction of having discovered the most distant galaxy known in the universe. It's a galaxy called GNZ 11. It's so far away that it takes its light 13.4 billion years to get from there to here. And uh, this is all part of our understanding of the extent of the universe, where we are in the universe, how the universe began, the Big Bang. How do you think this knowledge of the physical universe has,
1: has changed our, our view of ourselves? It can go one of two ways. I think it can lead some to believe that we can figure it all out, or that it's an ultimate mystery, this paradox of transcendence and imminence, that God is as far as the farthermost star, GNZ whatever, and yet as close as the air we breathe. So it gets back to those two words you used that amazement sum it up well. and humility. Radical amazement and deep
0: humility. And so why should we be, why should we be humble with these great
1: Discoveries that we've made. For the reason you said that it just confirms realities greater than we ever imagined beyond ourselves, that this isn't all there is, there's more. There's a
0: lot more. And we've uh, made discoveries in cosmology, both in time and space. We can actually calculate the age of the universe.
1: I'll tell you, and again, uh, what's the latest dating of the universe? billion years. I think I read that in Mr. G. The last 21 months of COVID, I believe have also taught us something related to our conversation. That even with the best production on Zoom, it's not the same energy as this conversation. So no matter what scientists can create, there's no substitute for the energy of human interaction I'm not sure science can explain the difference it makes to be together. Do you agree? I agree. I don't think there's
0: much that we've said today that, where we disagree. So one thing that, that science has found is that everything is impermanent. I mean, The, the Buddhists had it right, that uh, not only do our physical bodies disintegrate, which everybody knows. I mean, my own hearing is beginning to weaken. Uh, My memory is not as good as it used to be. But everything in nature is impermanent. Even the stars, which for millennia were thought to be eternal and and the emblem of divinity and, and permanence, we know that they will eventually burn up their nuclear fuel. So everything is impermanent in the physical world. Is there still meaning? Eventually, all the stars will burn out and there will be no energy sources left in the cosmos and there will be no life left in the cosmos. Not just life like us, but life of any kind. Will, will there still be meaning?
1: Absolutely, here's why. Even as your hearing weakens, even as you and I age, hopefully we both agree on two things that are not impermanent. The first is that love doesn't die. Don't you need a lover to have love? Oh, not necessarily. The people I love more than life itself are no longer living. After someone dies, the love doesn't diminish. We end all of our services in the sanctuary recalling people who have died 5, 10, 50 years ago And people cry remembering the life shared. So of two things I'm certain, love doesn't die and goodness goes on. At least the quest for goodness, the search for goodness, the passion for goodness, why you're passionate about what you do, no matter how you age. So I I, I do believe the Buddhists got it right in terms of the material world being impermanent, but I'm not sure love has to die That's the beauty of what remains after someone dies, is that the love is still there. And I'm not just saying that to sound rabbinic. Do you not believe that? Do you not love your parents as much now as you did when they were living? Absolutely. Why? But I but I am here
0: to love them. And so my postulate is, once there are no longer any living creatures in the universe to remember their parents and their grandparents, once everyone is gone, all life forms are gone, will there still, still be meaning? That's the question.
1: Will there still be meaning? Well, we haven't discussed where we go from here. And the rabbi may sound like an agnostic in saying, we don't know, but faith is believing that it will be all right, that this soul that defines who we are, uh, cemeteries in Judaism, for instance, are given a euphemistic name. They're called a Beit Chaim, a house of life. Why would you call a cemetery a house of life if dead people are there? And the answer the early rabbis gave is, they're not really there. Cemeteries are not for the dead, they're for the living. So the, the dead, their souls have left their bodies, their bodies disintegrate in the ground. So... So their souls still exist somewhere. Like waves in the ocean. You know, I may be shared in other faith traditions, but the he wave and the she wave are coming into the beach. And the he wave says to the she wave, pardon the gender differentiation, but that's the way it goes. Oh my goodness, look at what's ahead. We're gonna turn into white foam. It's gonna all be over. And the she wave says, it's fine, honey. He's like, how can you say it's fine? I've loved our life together as a wave. It's all ending. She said, it's gonna be okay. He said, how can you say that? And before they crash, she says to him, something that finally calms him down. She says, honey, you're forgetting something very important. You're not just a wave. We're part of an ocean. And so, yes, I think if we were to believe that this is all there is, then you're, Hypothetical rings true, but perhaps there's more to life than this.
0: So, our souls will continue to exist after the physical bodies are gone, and even after there's no physical life left in the universe, you're saying there still will be souls.
1: Hard to understand or to even visualize because the only time we've seen souls without bodies are Casper the Friendly Ghost, and that's a cartoon. But humility and believing that it will be all right means that God will find a
0: way. In the mid 20th century, astronomers and physicists discovered that all of the atoms in our bodies except for the the lightest atoms, were made in the centers of stars. So we're all connected. And even if there are creatures out there in the cosmos on other planets, they're connected in the same way. Does that uh, connection between all of us, does does it affect our understanding of ourselves? Does it help us heal the broken world? Are you saying that we're made of the same stuff as rocks?
1: We're made of the same stuff as rocks. What a gift to be a human and not a rock. A rock doesn't feel. We place rocks on headstones to remember loved ones lost. A rock doesn't cry. If science, uh, my professor at Cornell, Carl Sagan, a blessed memory, was one of the ones with William Provine who enlarge my understanding not only of the cosmos, but my interest in religion. Not a religious person, but one who opened my eyes to the grandeur and mystery of life itself. So scientists have the potential through their creation to help and to what we would say heal this broken world because the end game again is being God's partner in healing a shattered broken world to to mend the brokenness. So whether one believes or not in a higher power, whoever that higher power is, has no other hands but ours to heal the hurt. Scientists have the potential to be
0: that partner. And and what is there in particular about science, as opposed to to painters and uh, trash collectors uh, that enables them to heal, help heal the broken world? What is there unique about scientists? Or what is the special thing
1: that scientists can contribute to healing the broken world? Scientists can devise paint or buildings that don't have asbestos and that prolong life, I believe our task as humans is to prolong life, not prolong suffering. We didn't talk about lifespan. I believe in the year 1800, lifespan was uh, was 37 years old. I believe in 1900, it was about 47, and then the numbers flipped in 2000. Science is helping prolong life but we need to beware of the suffering that science or religion, wrongly applied, can lead to. That is, prayer has to lead to action. What good are prayers if they stay inside this space? They have to help heal the rest of the world outside these walls, and that is, I think, the potential for both science and religion in prolonging life and not suffering.
0: Well, does prolonging life help repair the broken world? It's not obvious to me that simply prolonging life does that.
1: I'm not talking about biological life. I'm talking about a life of meaning and purpose. Uh, I'm not saying I'm the same at 58 as I was at 28, but I'm still trying to make a difference. And I think everyone can make a difference, whether they're a painter or a Nobel laureate. One of the uh, lessons I've learned from living in a city uh, with the third poorest zip code in America and the most charitable city per capita in America is the power of one person to make a difference, no matter who one is. I mean, King said, you don't have to have a college degree. You just have to have this courage to care. I believe scientists use their minds if they use their hearts, just as if religious people apply our faith traditions to heal rather than hurt, to empower rather than to seek power, and to liberate, whether it's the energy or to liberate, the most vulnerable people on this planet from their powerlessness, then there will only be good for both science and religion.
0: Well, you mentioned uh, the prolonging of life as one example of something that science has contributed to help heal the broken world. Uh, is, are there other examples, besides prolonging life, where, where science specifically has helped us come together and heal the broken world. And we're really talking about the boundaries of science here. It
1: seems that science is confirming that we're all interconnected, that we are not atomized in our local countries or states or cities, but that the universe, the humanity, What affects one affects the other. We've seen that throughout COVID, that no matter what one's politics, if the world isn't vaccinated, you can't put a wall up in the air. So the way scientists are working together to cure diseases, not just prolong life, but to, reiterate and emphasize with every discovery that no matter where one lives, no matter what one has, no matter who one is, no matter what one believes, that we're all interconnected. We owe that to science.
0: Of course, the internet is the supreme example of that. The internet, uh, as, as you know, is, can be used both for, for good and for ill. So it seems like that many of the creations of science can be used both for good or for ill. There's bad religion and there's bad science. We need to elevate the good in both. A few minutes ago, I said that I was, I described myself as a spiritual materialist. And the materialist part of that is that I believe that the world is made out of atoms and only atoms and including people. And you said that you were also a materialist Is there a possible danger in the materialist viewpoint that everything is atoms and only atoms? Human
1: beings are by definition material beings, in part, in that as living organisms, our lives are temporal, they're ephemeral, they're somewhat mundane, ordinary, they're physical, and yet The human spirit inside this physical body has the potential to look out for oneself and even have a tendency towards greed and power and control and dominance and acquisition. When you say materiality, that's the danger to me of And in many ways, it explains most of the isms of the 20th century. Uh, These ideas of Lenin and Stalin, some of them sounded good until applied. We saw the Gulag, we saw what power, what the material and Nazism, the dominance of really led by PhDs in all different types of fields, smart people. So there is a side to the material that demands a corrective. Selfishly, I get to be a rabbi so that I can self-reflect on that in prayer every day and try to become a better version of my own self, admitting my imperfections, which often relate to the material. Everything in life is so fragile. We all know that we can be here today and gone tomorrow, which is why the search ultimately will never be for the material for a life of meaning. It will be for what lasts in an impermanent world. And I believe a love that lasts implies a relationship that transcends the material, whether that relationship is to a friend like you, a God beyond us or within us, and ultimately a relationship with myself to become better. I don't know if that answers your question.
0: Yeah, I think that's... Thanks to Rabbi Micah Greenstein and all at Temple Israel in Memphis for their assistance in our filming. And thanks also to Father Ben and everyone at St. Mike's Catholic Church for welcoming us to Micah's Interfaith Sermon. One deep thought I took away from this conversation is that while we may all be atoms, we're not atomized. As Rabbi Micah says, we're all connected. Thanks also to you for listening. Until next time, this is Alan Lightman for searching our quest for meaning in the age of science.